And we are in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, and there's 31 verses in this chapter, and we've been doing these in half, but this one we're going to do in thirds. So we're going to do the first 10 verses today. The first 10 verses, because there's a couple of these that um, we'll look up some additional cross-references. So, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. The way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you help us today, Lord, to understand, Lord, to diligently apply these truths to our own life, Lord, to walk in the pathway of the righteous, and Lord, to reject every false way. So Lord, teach us today from your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Here in verse 1, he begins by saying, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Here, this is a great encouragement uh, to us as believers to be reminded and to know that God is sovereign over all things, that there is nothing in this world that is outside of his control, even the will of man and even the will of the most powerful of men. God's will is supreme over all things, right? Even over the king who is here described like Uh, channels of water in the hands of the Lord. His heart is like a channel of water that God can turn it wherever he wishes and God can bring about his will on the earth. He can do so supernaturally. He can do so through natural means like through the raising up of certain kings and certain men of great renown and then using them to enact his will here upon the earth whether they want to or not. Right, Whether they're believers or not, God can do all that he pleases. God's will is supreme. And this is a great comfort to the people of God. Because no man, even the most powerful of men, none of them can harm us apart from the will of our Father who is in heaven. If God can turn the heart of the king, he can turn the heart of the president, He can turn the heart of the senator. He can turn the heart of the justice. He can turn the heart of the governor or whomever he wants. He can turn them so that he uses them to be a blessing to his people, right? In order to bring about our good, our advantage, and our benefit on this earth. Or he can use them and turn them to bring judgment upon the ungodly, upon the wicked, and there upon the land. And whatever God desires is what will happen on this earth. So when we look and perceive at our world, and many times as we look at it from our human perception, as we look at it uh, and we read the news and we see the headlines and all that is happening, right? Everything seems to be chaos. It seems out of order, and in many ways it is, right? You have men behaving like women. You have women behaving like men. Actually, I found out something just this week when we were visiting with Chuck and Lisa, our friends from West Virginia, Chuck, who we support now, his wife, uh, Lisa, she, is a, uh, she has a PhD in speech uh, therapy. And she used to teach speech therapy at Marshall University and has a PhD in that field from the University of Kentucky. And I was asking her, she still teaches a little bit here and there uh, about that field and how it was going. And she said, it's actually becoming much more difficult to practice speech therapy as a Christian. And I thought, how could it be difficult to sp- practice speech therapy as a Christian? Well, guess who many of the clients are now in the area of speech therapy? Men who want to sound like women and women who want to sound like men. This transgender movement. And in many of the clinics, this is what the greater part of their clients are, 
are these men who want their voice to sound more like a woman and that they have to see these people. And if they don't, then they, they get in trouble and penalized. So even in the world of speech therapy, right, these things are happening. So we look at the world and it seems chaotic, confusing. It's out of control. There's no order. Everything is in disarray and in utter madness. But here we are assured who is in control of all things and who can turn things at his will. He can turn things on a dime if he pleases and things can go from bad to worse or things can go from bad to good according to the will of God. Whatever he wants to happen on the earth, God will accomplish it and he raises up men in order to bring these things about. He is the one who raises up a kingdom and then he brings a kingdom down. He is the one who elevates one man to be the king, and then he brings him down, and he's able to humble them, and he gives it to whomever he wishes, as Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel chapter 4. So for us, we can know and be assured that no man can harm us. They cannot touch us. They cannot even so much as harm one hair on our head apart from the will of who? apart from the will of our Father who is in heaven. And even if he allows these wicked men, these wicked kings and rulers, to persecute, to harass, uh, to harm the church of Jesus Christ, it's not happening outside of God's will. They are not subverting and overthrowing the will of God. So we can rest and have comfort in knowing that whatever befalls us in this life it is happening according to the will of our Father. And if we are his children, whatever happens to us, even those things that are evil, they will ultimately work for our good and for his glory. Nothing can happen outside of his will. A couple of examples. Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Here we see that God was the one who was exercising his sovereign rule over the heart of Pharaoh. And we know from Romans chapter 9 that God's desire and the very reason that he raised Pharaoh up to this position of honor was so that he might show his power in him and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth by bringing judgments upon Pharaoh. Exodus 9 verse 12, it says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. So there, the heart of Pharaoh is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord, and he's turning it wherever he wishes. In this case, he's hardening Pharaoh's heart because what does God desire to do to Pharaoh? He desires to destroy him, to judge him. And not in a quick and easy way. He wants to make a public display and spectacle of Pharaoh and of Egypt, right, because of all of their wickedness, because of all of their evil. Now, in a sense, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And that is certainly true. And he is responsible for his own sin. And he can't blame God as if Pharaoh wanted to repent and wanted to heed the will of God and hear the word of God and have a soft heart, but God wouldn't allow him to do so. Now, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, but overriding all of this, the one who is in control of everything, ultimately, it is the will of God. And God is the one who hardened his heart so that he might destroy Pharaoh, might destroy him and make a public display to all the world. Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. I meant Ezra chapter 6. Ezra 6.22 says, And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here God turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them, right? To be favorable, to be beneficial to the children of Israel so that they might worship God and be encouraged in doing the will of God and the house of the Lord. So in this way, it's for their blessing. God is using a wicked, evil king, an unbelieving king, to be a blessing to his people and turning his heart 
to them so that he does things that are favorable to them. To them. We know this also happened in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, that there the king, his heart was turned toward Nehemiah and toward his people so that he was the one that funded out of his own treasuries the rebuilding of the wall there in Jerusalem and gave Nehemiah all that he needed in order to finish that great work. Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by my right hand to subdue nations before him and to loosen the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. There Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, was a king whose heart was like a channel of water in the hand of the Lord and God turned it toward his people. Cyrus was the one that made the proclamation that the Jews could return back to their homeland after their deportation in the time of their judgment. Then Luke 21, all of this should be a great encouragement to us. Because when we see these men, especially when they are against us and against the church of God, They're right here before us. They're visible, they're physical, they're present, and they can be very terrifying. But we have to see that behind them, unseen to our natural eyes, is God standing and ruling and governing all of these things so that nothing can befall us apart from his will. And this gives us hope, comfort, confidence during these times of trial and tribulation. Luke 21, verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your life. So there, these things are going to happen to them. Jesus is foretelling. He's predicting to his disciples what is going to happen to them. Even some of them are going to be put to death because of Christ. However, he assures them that not a hair on your head will perish apart from his will. He will save them and he will deliver them, even if it means raising them up to everlasting life. That's ultimately how he will do so. So here, the king, his heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. God is the only one who has free will. His free will is used over the will of man. And God does whatever he pleases and no one can thwart him, no one can stop him, from doing what he wants to do. He does whatever he pleases amongst the great ones of the earth and amongst those of lesser estate. Verse two, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Here, every man in his own eyes, his way is right. There are very few people who have the honesty to say, I know that I'm a worthless, wicked man. I know that everything I'm doing is sinful and evil and I'm going to go to hell for it. No one says that. Everyone is out there no matter what they're doing, even if they're drug dealers, even if they are uh, serial fornicators, whatever they're doing, everyone thinks that their way is right, that it is good. This is the way that you should live, that there is some advantage in living this type of life. In their own eyes, they seem justified and they will often in their speech justify themselves to anyone who is willing to listen to them. However, when men are living according to what is right in their own eyes, right, not right in the eyes of God, but according to their own judgment, according to their own wisdom, it always leads to sin, to evil, to wickedness. It is not the right way, though they are fully convinced that it is the right way. They're on the wrong path, but they're actually thinking that they're on the right path. And this is because everything is upside down. The whole world is upside down to the eyes of the unbeliever. What is good, they call evil. What is evil, they call good. 
What is bitter, they say, is sweet. What is sweet, they say, is bitter. Darkness is light. Light is darkness. Everything is corrupted and blinded due to sin. And this is why they think, they perceive in their own wisdom and mind that everything that they do is good and right and pleasing when actually it is the exact opposite. And this is why they do these things. But what does God do? He weighs the heart, right? God judges the hearts of men And by whose eyes is God judging the hearts of men? His own eyes, his own standards, his own righteousness. He's not judging men according to their own standard of righteousness. If that was the case, then we would all pass the approval of God because everyone is wise in his own eyes. But God judges us according to his own righteousness and truth. And God judges not merely what happens outwardly, but God even judges the heart the very hearts of men, and they will answer to him. Their self-proclaimed righteousness will be measured and weighed against his true righteousness, and then they will be found wanting, wanting that they are indeed actually evil and wicked men. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. Proverbs 16, 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, But the Lord weighs the motives, right? All of the ways of the man are clean. They're good, they're pure, they're right, right? In their own sight. But we cannot trust our own perceptions, our own wisdom. We have to trust the word of God. What does the Bible say about this action or that action, right? And and we, again, see this in our own day and age. Aren't those who are practicing the sin of homosexuality today, aren't they declaring that this is a very good lifestyle? It's very holy, it's very righteous, that it's a wonderful way to live, though everyone knows it's not because of the misery that they live in. But no one is going out there saying, I know that this is detestable and evil in the sight of God and I'm going to go to hell for this. But they are saying that this is good. They're celebrating it. And not only are they celebrating it, who else do they want to celebrate it? Everyone, they want all of us to celebrate it as well. But that sin and every other sin, that action has to be weighed according not to the will of man or the wisdom of man and not the public opinion of men, but it has to be weighed according to the word of God. What does the Bible have to say about this action, this lifestyle, this virtue, this way of thinking? And if the Bible condemns it, then we have to condemn it and say that, no, this is not good and right, but actually the Bible says it's evil and it's abomination and that if you don't repent of it, then there will be judgment and punishment that comes upon you. We can't do what is right in our own eyes, but we have to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Right, and that comes to humility. Humility, this is why it is such a chief virtue of the Christian life. We must admit that we are stupid, right? That we have no perception. We have no wisdom. We have no understanding. We're completely ignorant of everything. We cannot judge anything rightly. And we need God to teach us through his word and humbly come to the word of God and believe what the Bible says. Verse three, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Here, now this verse is important because one, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament where there were many outward ceremonies that accompanied the worship of God under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had numerous ceremonies, rituals that were incumbent on the people to keep and perform these things. And in a sense, for them to do so. Yes, absolutely. Right? It was proper and necessary for them to bring sacrifices to God. It was proper and necessary for them to go to the temple of God, to go to the priest of God, to do the washing rituals that were there uh, instructed unto them by God, to follow the food laws that were given to them by God. So there were many ceremonies in the old covenant that the people were obligated to keep. And if they rejected those and did not follow them, then that was a sin against God. However, here... The prophet is making a distinction between ceremonial law and between moral law, right? That's what he's doing here, and he's showing that the one is greater than the other. Now, he's not saying that the ceremonies don't matter. 
The ceremonies are inconsequential. The ceremonies, we can take it or leave it. We know that that wasn't the case, that they had to take those things. However, what is the danger? What is the sin that is so common to men? It is to think that they can commit and do various rituals that are instituted by God, and that as long as they do those rituals, they can then go out and live however they want to live, and that God is going to be pleased with them. So long as I'm bringing my sacrifice to God, and I'm bringing it to the temple, and I'm bringing it to the high priest, then I can go and commit adultery. And it doesn't matter. I can go and be a drunkard. I can go out and be a cheat and a thief and steal from my neighbor. And I can do whatever I please because I went and offered my sacrifice to God. I went to the temple of God. I went to the priest of God. I went and did all these things. But what is more important? Is it more important to do these outward ceremonies? Or is it more important to obey God, to keep his will, to do his, uh, keep his will, uh, word and to do his will? Righteousness and justice, these are the weightier provisions of the law. And here, this was clearly taught and seen even in the Old Covenant, that they were to understand and have this right attitude and mentality toward the moral law and the ceremonial law, but toward righteousness and justice and things like sacrifice. Yes, there is a place for sacrifice in the Old Covenant, just as today there is a place for us to take the Lord's Supper. We did that today. There is a place for a man to be baptized. But if one is baptized and if one takes the Lord's Supper every day, but then goes out and lives a perverse, wicked, evil life contrary to the law of God, do these things save him? Are they of any benefit and value to him? No. Actually, they're detestable in the sight of God. When we take them in an unworthy manner, according to 1 Corinthians 11, we actually are eating and drinking judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. And there in 1 Corinthians 11, we remember that even during the midst of their king of the Lord's Supper, what are they doing? They're being self-centered. They're being gluttonous, right? Some are getting drunk, some are eating, and others have nothing. But the very nature of this supper, this fellowship unity meal, this love feast that we have together should be for us to deny ourselves and to prefer our brother above our own needs and interests. Yet in the very midst of their taking of the Lord's Supper, they're being self-centered. They're being self-righteous. They're not considering those who are poor and those who are weak and those who have nothing. So is God pleased with that? Well, he commanded us to take the Lord's Supper, but only if we're doing it the right way. Just as in the Old Covenant, he commanded them to offer sacrifices, but that could not be absent from justice and righteousness. And yet this is what is so often the case. In every generation and in every age, people want rituals, they want ceremonies, and as long as I do this one and that one, it guarantees me God's favor, and then I can go and live however I please. Actually, this type of mentality is really seen even in the Southern Baptist churches, the church that I grew up in, this type of mentality. Because if you went and came down to the front and you said this prayer and you were baptized and you became a member of the church, you could disappear for the next 50 years. And if you died, what are they going to do? They're going to get up and preach you right into heaven because when he was eight years old at VBS, he gave his life to Christ. Is it not the same thing? Even if you live a life of unrighteousness and injustice, it doesn't matter because you became a Christian. It's giving these types of rituals and outward performances that guarantee favor with God regardless of the way that we live. But what good is it to go through these rituals if our life is not manifesting and bearing the fruit of repentance, if we're not living a godly life, right? Not a perfect life, but a godly life. And that's what he's saying here as well in the book of Proverbs. Hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, before the New Testament was written, they were to understand these, these things. Okay, a couple of examples. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. This is what Samuel said to Saul. When Saul was not being obedient to God, yet he wanted God's favor and approval. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as is, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Right? God doesn't merely delight in these sacrifices, these rituals, apart from obeying the voice of the Lord. Right? It doesn't do you any benefit or value. You need to obey the voice of the Lord, and then what do you need to do? Then offer your sacrifice, and it will be pleasing to God. That's the proper way. Isaiah chapter 1, do so with humility instead of in a haughty, sinful way. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, or 10 to 17. Isaiah 1, 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for them. So, who is requiring these things of you? Well, God requires it in a sense, but not like this. Not in the way that they're doing it. They're doing it in a corrupt way. And that's why, though God was the one who appointed many of these things, he detests them and hates them because they're not doing them by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, even if we're doing things, outward ceremonies that God has instituted. Apart from faith, they are of no benefit or any value at all, but actually they will bring condemnation upon us. Condemnation, increased judgment. Hosea. Hosea chapter 6 Verse 6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So here, it's the same, the same sin that is being seen over and over again uh, in the people of Israel, who have the word of God, the oracles of God. Right? They're not, they, they do have the true ceremonies and the proper way to worship God, but they're not doing it according to the word of God, right? The ceremonies are right, but the heart is all wrong. And if the heart is wrong, then it corrupts the ceremony, even if we follow them by the letter of the law. Micah chapter 6. Micah 6 verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my, rebellion, my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So there. All of these things, even thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, even the firstborn of our own womb, our firstborn son, cannot be offered in this way, the way that they're doing it, by committing sins against God and thinking that just offering to God some sacrifice, some gift, is going to cover that regardless of the heart and regardless of whether or not we desire to follow him. And then lastly, Matthew 12 Matthew 12, Jesus applies this same principle here in a controversy with the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do 
on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what it means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So there, a right understanding of this principle, this relationship between the moral law of God, right, and the ceremonial law of God, right, this is key to understanding the Bible and making sure that we are not condemning innocent people. That's what they were doing because they don't understand this distinction, right, this way of, of thinking whenever we're looking at the Word of God when we're looking at the Bible. So we must understand the harmony between these laws and that there are the weightier provisions of the law and those weightier provisions are love, justice, righteousness, mercy, compassion. These things need to be a part of our life and if we're lacking in those things but then clinging on to ceremonies and rituals, then we're believing a lie, a lie that will lead us to hell. Right, if we don't repent of that things and worship and serve God in a true and proper way. Back to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. Here, these go together. Proud-hearted men look with haughty eyes upon others. Right? When they have pride in their heart, the result is they look down, they have disdain for other men. Right? This is the way that they behave. And a good example of this would be in Luke 18. The Pharisee there that went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, he lifts up his hands and his eyes there to uh, heaven. And he's praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He has a proud heart. And the result of his proud heart is that he has haughty eyes when he looks at his fellow men. And he says, I'm grateful that I'm like this tax collector. He has disdain toward him because of the pride that is within his heart. So these two things go together. And they are the lamp that is in the wicked. Pride is their lamp that governs and rules the way they view God, the way they view their fellow man, and the way they view this present world, right? The eye is the lamp of the body. It is by our eyes that we see and that we perceive the world around us. Well, the lamp of the wicked is his pride. It is what is ruling and governing the way that he perceives and looks at God and the way that he perceives and looks at his fellow man, and he has haughty eyes in this way. And that's why he says it's a sin. It is a sin for him. It leads him to commit many sins against God because he's not humble before the Lord and it leads him to commit many sins against his fellow man because he's boastful, he's proud, he's arrogant, he's jealous, right? He has all these kinds of sins that accompany pride in relationship to his fellow man. Verse five, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Here, the plans of the diligent lead to an advantage, right? Wise plans and then diligent execution of those plans, which takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. When a person is planning what is wise and good and then diligent to give himself to those things, it will lead to his advantage. And this is true both in the natural world, in the financial world, right? In the world in which we live, but also in the spiritual realm as well. Who is going to become a mature Christian overnight. Does it happen quickly like that, in the snap of a finger? It takes time over the course of a life. And a person has to have a wise plan. He has to read the Bible and see, what are the things that God has given in the Word that will cause me to grow and to mature? He sees that reading the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, studying the Word of God, prayer, assembling with the saints, walking with the wise men. He sees all these things, and so he has a good plan, and then he must diligently give himself to that plan, right? Not over the course of one or two weeks, but over the course of his life. And if he does that and is disciplined in that way, what will be the result? He will have an advantage, 
right? This is the way it will be. But everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. The person, both in the natural world and in the spiritual world, who wants it quickly, in a hasty way, right? He wants to be proficient and a master of something, and he wants it immediately overnight. And if it doesn't come easy and quickly, then what's he going to do? He's going to give up. He's not going to be diligent. He'll become frustrated, and he'll walk away. He's going to come to poverty and to ruin and to nothing. Verse 6, the acquisition of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. Here, acquiring treasure by a lying tongue. Now, this is an accompaniment to verse 5, where there, the acquiring of treasure is in a hasty way. They want to do it in this quick, easy way, instead of through hard work, through diligence. In that way, they want it in a quick way. Well, here, they want riches by lying, through a lying tongue. And even if they acquire those riches through their lies, and many people do, right? Just look at the, uh, all of our senators and representatives. They're all getting very wealthy. Many of them are liars, but they have great wealth. But ultimately, it's a fleeting vapor. Because if you gain wealth by a lying tongue, who are you going to answer to one day? You're going to answer to God. And are you going to stand before God with all of your wealth? You're not going to have a penny of it. You're going to answer to him, and instead, you're going to have death. Death and destruction. You want the treasures because they will give you comforts and pleasures in this life. But people are so short-sighted. So short-sighted because there is this life, but what comes after this life? It's the life to come, right? It's the day of judgment. This life is temporal. The life to come is eternal. Yet they will exchange eternal life for eternal torment, right? And they'll do that in order to gain riches that will only benefit them in this present life, only for a very short amount of time. It is a fleeting vapor, Right? It is the pursuit of death. How foolish for someone to part with their life, to exchange their soul for treasures. And yet, is this not common among men? Are there not many, many men on the day of judgment who this is what will be brought before them? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, people will give a thousand dollars, two, ten, a hundred, a million, any number. Right? People will give in exchange for their soul. And it's a very foolish thing. So it is fine for a person to work hard. It is fine for a person to grow an estate, to have treasures, to have wealth, but only if it is acquired through lawful means and by the blessing of the Lord. But if it requires sin, then we should reject it. We should reject it and not pursue it in those ways. Otherwise, it'll bring judgment upon us. Verse 7. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. The violence of the wicked is going to eventually drag them away. And we know that many men who are violent men, wicked men, and who exact violence on other people, many of them, eventually, what happens to them? It all comes back upon them. And they who are violent, those who live by the sword, are going to die by the sword. They lived in a violent way, and all of a sudden their violence descends upon their own head. And they are drug away because they refuse to act with justice. Especially amongst those who are the leaders, who are the ones who are to bring about justice in the land. But if they themselves are, are unjust in setting this bad example to the people, well, what makes them think that they're above it? that someone won't come and kill them one day. If they're using their power to kill others, well, maybe one of them will come and kill them as well. And what they've done to others will come and descend upon their own head. Isn't this what happened to wicked Haman in Esther chapter 7? He was a violent man. He wanted to put Mordecai to death, use his power, his influence, to kill the Jewish people. And yet, who ended up having the violent death? It was not Mordecai. It was not the Jews, but it was Haman and the enemies of the Jews that God put them to death. He was a violent man, and in his own violence, he was drug away and hanged on the very gallows that he intended for Mordecai. Verse 8, the way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. 
The way of the wicked, the guilty man, is a crooked way. The sinner does not walk on the straight and narrow path, but walks on crooked paths of sin. This is the way that they desire. They love it. It is crooked. It is evil. This is what they desire more than anything else. But the pure, their conduct is upright. Now, we have to ask, how is a person pure? How is he pure? Well, first, he must be purified by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Jesus that purifies us of all unrighteousness. We must first be purified by the blood of Christ, but then after we are purified by his blood, the result is that we desire to live a pure life. We want to live a godly life. We want to walk on the straight path. We don't want to walk on the crooked path anymore. The crooked path we see brings nothing but death and misery, and we want to walk on the straight way, the straight and narrow, the way of purity. And as a result, his conduct is upright. He seeks, as best as he can, to live a pure, upright, undefiled, righteous, godly life. Not a perfect life, because no one can do that, but he desires this pure life in his conduct to be upright and to be above reproach. Verse 9, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Here, the contrast is the corner of the roof and the house. And if you're looking at things and all things are the same, we would say that it is far preferable to live in a house than to live in the corner of a roof, right? To be up on the roof where you're exposed to wind, to rain, to the cold, to the sun beating down on you, and you're denied all the pleasures and comforts of domesticated life, of living in the house and having all of the uh, comforts that come with living in the house. So anyone looking objectively and said, if your option is to live on the roof or to live in the house, which one would you prefer? And everyone would say, well, of course, I would rather live in the house. But if you add in another factor, the X factor, and here, what is the X factor? A contentious woman. Then, all of a sudden, the corner of the house becomes preferable to living within the house because of the contentious woman. This is the way it is. It's better to live on the corner of the roof, exposed to the heat, to the cold, to the wind, to the rain, than to have to be in the house with this contentious, brawling type of woman that's going to make everything miserable for you. Now, this is a complete subversion of the very intention of marriage. What is the reason that God created the woman? It's so that man would not have to be alone, so that he wouldn't have to live on the corner of the roof, so that he could have a house and it would be clean and it would be well decorated because men are horrible decorators. They don't know what they're doing, right? They don't know how to, to keep house and make things proper. Who wants to eat ramen noodles every night? No man does, but this is what they would do. If it weren't for the woman, they're making good food for them, right? This is what we want, to live this peaceful, uh, a happy life. And that's the very purpose of God creating the woman and putting the man and woman together. And yet, what makes this the case? It's sin. Sin ruins everything. Every good institution and every good gift of God can be corrupted when sin is introduced. And in this case, the tranquil, domesticated life is ruined when, in this case, the woman is a contentious woman. Now, here it's stated in this way, but obviously the converse is true as well. It's better for a woman to live on the corner of a roof than to have to live with a, uh, a foul man, a drunken man, right? A contentious man, a deadbeat of a man who doesn't do anything, who's a big fat slob and doesn't take care of anything, right? Neither one should, should want it one way or the other. So instead, what should we do? We should all fulfill our responsibilities, the husband to the wife, the wife to the husband, and we should seek to make the home as peaceful and harmonious as we possibly can. And when we are pursuing um, marriage, we should do so with great caution, with great caution, and make sure for the young men that they're not marrying contentious women, and usually you can tell, it can come out even when they're young, if you have some perception about you, and for the young women not to marry deadbeats, deadbeat men who are going to be worthless and bring misery upon them, but instead, godly people who are going to make life better, right? It's going to be better. It's a blessing to gain a wife or to gain a husband, right? It's a great blessing 
And we don't want that blessing to turn into a curse, a curse, such as Esau's wives. Remember in Genesis 26 that Esau married these Hittite women, and they made life miserable on Isaac and Rebekah when they came in to the household there. So we don't want to repeat that same foolish mistake. Verse 10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Here, the soul of the wicked desires evil. He longs for evil and sin. And evil is committed against God, but evil is also committed against our neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor. These are the two chief virtues of the Christian life. So if sin is a violation of the law of God, sin is transgression of God's law, and the law of God is summarized by loving God and loving neighbor as ourself, then if a person desires sin, he is going to commit evil acts against his neighbor. He's going to do this. This is a part of the sinful nature of man. The wicked drink this like water. They want it above all things. So the soul of the wicked desires evil. We remember in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that when God looked upon men, the intentions of their heart were only evil continuously. Only evil continuously. This is the way it is in the hearts of men. And then as a result, instead of loving his neighbor as himself, his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. He does whatever he can to destroy his neighbor, to take advantage of his neighbor, to use and abuse his neighbor to his own advantage without considering the well-being of someone else. And a good example of this would be 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, Ahab had a neighbor, but his neighbor found no favor in his eyes. He didn't love his neighbor, but instead he destroyed him. 1 Kings 21, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it it is in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is sullen and that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And then what happened? Exactly what she told them to do is what happened. Naboth was put to death, and Ahab took possession of his vineyard. Did Naboth find favor in the eyes of Ahab? No. He finds no favor in his eyes because Ahab was a wicked man who desired evil. His soul desired evil, and because of that, He was willing to put to death an innocent man, a righteous man, in order to take what belonged to him. And this is how it is in this present world. And this desire remains in our own flesh, right? The flesh, this is what the flesh desires, hatred to God and hatred toward our neighbor. And it will rise up within us, in our home. It will rise up here within the church. And so what must we do? We have to put it to death. We have to put it to death and walk in a way that is pure and upright, whose conduct is upright. The upright conduct is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is the way that the pure should walk. And so may we then commit ourselves to living in such a way, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, to crucify sin, 
and to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we are greatly comforted knowing that you are the one who is in control of all things, that you are the sovereign ruler of this universe, and that there's nothing that happens, Lord, that is outside of your control. Lord, even the greatest of men, even the kings of this earth, Lord, their heart is like a channel of water in your hand, and you're able to turn it whichever way that you please. We ask, Father, in your kindness to us, that you might turn the hearts of those that are ruling our land toward us. Lord, to do favorable. Lord, to do things that are beneficial for the sake of your church. Lord, that there might be laws and policies in place in our own land that are a benefit and an advantage to Christians so that we can worship you freely, so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness, so that we can raise our families in the fear of the Lord and preach the gospel without fear of persecution. But Lord, if you do not grant us such favor, but instead you harden the hearts of kings against us, then we pray, Father, that you use that to sanctify us and that you would give us faith and hope in you that we would not be dismayed and disheartened, even if we face imprisonment or loss of property or even death in this present world. Lord, may our, our hope of eternal life be greater in our desire for a heavenly country. Lord, far exceed our desire to live a comfortable life in this present world. So, Lord, may we walk in this pathway. And, Lord, we pray that our conduct would be upright in this present world. Lord, that we would not love riches, but rather that we would love you and your word, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we would do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So help us today, Lord, and help us this week to live in a manner that is worthy of your gospel. Lord, be with us as we go. We pray that you bless us as we travel home. Lord, be with those who are absent from us today. We pray for your blessing upon them and upon all of your church, wherever they are found, Lord, in this present world. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right.